from Pacifica Radio, this is Democracy Now! We move now back to the United States uh, to uh, talk with Noam Chomsky, uh, professor of linguistics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, has published scores of books, the leading intellectuals and activist thinkers of the century. It's as an unflinching activist that he's looked to by masses around the world as he took on the struggles in Vietnam, Central America, the NATO attacks on Yugoslavia. And today, as we come to the end of the century, uh, it's a tall order, Noam Chomsky. But um, tell us your thoughts. Well, well, since I just looked at the New York Times, I guess uh, the thoughts are directed to the New York Times, what they reported, which are a number of things. So for there's a front page story tell, saying that uh, uh, Bill Clinton and his majesty offered the Palestinians the choice of peace or victimhood. And if you really look carefully down into the story and you read the last paragraph of the continuation page as usual, you can find out that what he offered them is approximately relevant to your last speaker, uh, what South Africa offered uh, South African blacks in the early 1960s. Uh, you have to spell out the details and take a look at the maps that they don't present and r- understand what they mean when they talk about Jewish neighborhoods of Jerusalem, nam- namely a substantial part of the West Bank that cuts it in half and ensures that there'll be no contiguous Palestinian state and so on. Well, that's pretty normal. Another front-page story uh, uh, describes, uh, mentions the appointment of, reports the appointment of uh, Rumsfeld, as the uh, Secretary of Defense, uh, notes that he was a big Star Wars advocate, uh, pushed the national missile defense, which is, the story does not go on to point out, is very likely, it will almost certainly increase significantly the security dangers to the United States and the world uh, for reasons that have been well explained by U.S. intelligence analysts uh, and may be a step towards uh, ensuring that we don't make it to the the end of the next century. And we can go on from there. Well, Professor Chomsky, in terms of the situation right here at home in the United States, uh, clearly over the last uh, several decades of the century, uh, the uh, the American uh, labor movement and the people's movement appeared for a while to to uh, suffer some amazing setbacks. And in the last few years, there have been some signs of life in, uh, in the organized labor movement once again, in a movement that was declared dead uh, by many uh, uh, Republicans and other supporters of capital in the country, now has uh, shown amazing signs of life. Uh, but still, there's been an enormous trend in American society to get workers invested uh, in capitalism. In essence, uh, so many uh, firms now have developed 401k plans and, and there's, there's this alleged democratization of investment in capital. Do, do you see a growing disconnect between the American people and what is occurring uh, in the rest of the, of, the, of the world, especially in the third world? Or, or are the signs of things that happened in places like Seattle and the movement against sweatshops and, uh, and an environmental movement by young people, really, uh, your, in your estimation, the this, this sign of things to come and a growing change of consciousness in the broad sectors of the American people? 
Well, um, the the effort to try, uh, what's called in, uh, getting workers to invest in capitalism is a bit of a joke. Uh, actually, there was a lead story in the Wall Street Journal yesterday pointing out exactly what's meant by all of this. It's a way for the corporate is one of the many ways by which corporations uh, shirk the responsibility that they had undertaken to provide pensions uh, for long-time workers, uh, medical care, and so on. It's a lot of uh, chicanery. They actually go into the details pretty well. Uh, if you want to look at investment in America, just have a look at distribution of stocks in the stock market. Uh, close to half half the stocks are in the hands of about 1% of the, por- of the population. Uh, the bottom 80% of the population, which includes, of course, the whole workforce, uh, it has about uh, I think 4% or something like that distributed over a huge population. Uh, this is a joke. I mean, to use the word democratization is ridiculous. Uh, if there were real worker investment in corporations, that would mean worker takeover of corporations, which would be significant, but surely that's not what's contemplated. Uh, As for Seattle and uh, the third world, we should bear in mind that massive protests against uh, the neoliberal policies that last 20 years have been going on in the third world uh, for a long, long time, really major ones, including major popular movements which have uh, uh, substantial uh, institutional form in, in Brazil and South Africa and India and elsewhere. Uh, the reason the last couple of years these protests have spread to the north, to the United States, uh, at which point uh, you know they become visible all of a sudden. Uh, Seattle was extremely important in that respect. It wasn't the first case, but uh, it was the first case where it actually broke into the public in such a way that you couldn't ignore it. Uh, large-scale protests in the north involving not just students but labor movement uh, environmentalists others the range of constituencies was remarkable and with uh, uh, with international solidarity so solidarity actually for the first time in any serious way between uh, uh, forces here including the labor movement crucially and uh, and counterparts in the third world which had been protesting for years and this has continued so sure, this is there's there's a tremendous uh, popular uh, counter reaction all over the world to the policies that have been instituted, and there's nothing new about the objections. So, for example, when NAFTA was passed, the population was mostly against it here, and has remained against it. Uh, these issues, the, the serious issues that affect uh, uh, working people, meaning most of the population, don't, don't even, they're not even raised in the. Uh, uh, in the electoral campaigns and elsewhere. For example, one of the most significant concerns of Americans, North Americans, uh, Amer- uh, people from the United States, is uh, uh, the trade deficit. Turns out that's very high. That's been the, it's been their chief economic concern in the last year or two. And the reason is they're not stupid. Uh, they know that that means uh, U.S. corporations transferring operations abroad to undercut working people at home. And that's a You can argue about whether the majority of the population is right or not, but that's their concern. Uh, They're also concerned about the fact that the uh, capital mobility that's part of the neoliberal program, the ability of corporations to threaten, they don't have to do it, to threaten to move elsewhere, mostly to Mexico, but elsewhere too, has been a tremendously effective device in uh, undermining the American labor movement. In fact, it's one of its prime purposes. There's a new study about that by uh, Kate Bronfenbrenner at uh, the University of Cornell that people really ought to have a look at, the effectiveness of this weapon, the weapon of illegal threat, illegal threat to transfer production 
the, the effectiveness of that in union busting has been extraordinary. Uh, it uh, doesn't show up in the figures of transfer because most of them have no intention of transferring. It's just a threat uh, which ensures uh, that workers will be insecure and greater worker insecurity, meaning you know, not knowing whether you have a job tomorrow. Uh, that's considered by, uh, by Alan Greenspan and others as one of the remarkable achievements of uh, the contemporary economy, the Clinton economy, the Clinton-Greenspan economy. It has made working people extremely insecure uh, for good reasons uh, and therefore uh, f- afraid of uh, challenging the attacks on uh, their wages and benefits, which are significant. Noam, finally, do you have uh, hope more for the next century than this one? Do you see positive movements? Well, you know, the, we should remember that uh, these attacks on, on democracy and on human rights and uh, on working people, they're a constant. They never change. Those forces are always at work. The question is whether popular forces resist them. And over the past century, they have resisted them. It's been a bitter, harsh struggle. Lots of people killed. Uh, Many suffered. But over the century, there was progress. And uh, I would expect the same to be true over the next century. The question is how far it will go. Will it go to challenging the core of the institutions of uh, domination and coercion? Or will it uh, be able to achieve uh, significant amelioration of their harsh practices? Uh, those those are surely questions that we ought to be asking. But uh, you know, these are topics for action, not for speculation. Nobody can speculate. Well, Noam Chomsky, we want to thank you very much for being with us uh, today and uh, through these years. Thank you. Be with you. Noam Chomsky, uh, professor of linguistics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, has written more than 70 books. His activism uh, is around issues of uh, social justice is known throughout the world. You're listening to Pacifica Radio's Democracy Now! When we come back, we'll go to Britain to speak with filmmaker John Pilger, who has reported extensively on Cambodia, Iraq, East Timor, Indonesia, and other places. As well, we'll be joined by Manning Marable, who uh, is head of the African-American Studies Institute at Columbia University. You're listening to Pacific Radio's Democracy Now! Back in a minute.
You're listening to Pacifica Radio's Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman here with Juan Gonzalez, and this is what's coming up on Monday on Democracy Now! In the first year of the 21st century, there is strange and wondrous beauty, startling experiences that jolt and mystify, and the danger of complete obliteration. fundamental fairness of the process as a whole. I don't think so. I really haven't thought of it that way. We are here today to certify the results of the election that occurred November 7th, 2000. You want a recount? What? Recount! Recount! Oh, of all the juvenile things I've ever heard. You will not get my vote. Tune in for a shortcut to the 21st century. I'm an optimist. I, I never look at the try not to look at the dark side. I want to look at the positive side. I don't think so. I really haven't thought of it that way. That's a shortcut to the 21st century. In the 21st century. That's Monday on Democracy Now, a shortcut through the 20th century. Produced by Peter Boshen. You are listening to Pacifica Radio's Democracy Now! As we continue with our end of the millennium conversation, Manning Marable uh, is with us on the line. Uh, he is the director of the Institute for Research and African American Studies at Columbia University, national co-chair of the Black Radical Congress. Uh, he is also, uh, his most recent book is uh, titled, Let Nobody Turn Us Around. And I wonder, as we move into the next millennium, and you see what's happened in the last election, I believe one in nine African Americans uh, voted for the president-select right now, George Bush. And it may well be the African American vote in this country that was most discounted uh, in if you could even call it an election at this point. Your thoughts on where we stand? Well, clearly, uh, President Bush was not elected by the people. He was selected by the courts. And African Americans represented um, the overwhelmingly the core constituency that rejected the politics of uh, George W. Bush in Florida alone. The black vote jumped from something like 520,000 in 1996 to nearly one million in Missouri. Uh, nearly 300,000 African Americans voted compared to only 106,000 four years before. In state after state, the African American vote was the critical margin of victory for the Gore-Lieberman ticket. And truly, the tragedy of the 2000 election is that Gore and Lieberman were uh, un- unwilling or unable to rest their demands for a recount on the mass disenfranchisement of African-American and poor voters throughout this country. Consequently, black Americans were fighting for a principle of democracy that neither the Democratic Party nor its candidate for president were prepared to stake a claim to. Well, Professor Merrill, one of the uh, w- there's a report, of course, in the in today's papers about the census count and how 
uh, the Census Bureau was taken by surprise by more than eight, eight, eight million more people than they expected live in the United States. And, and my sources have told me that one of the big things they're trying to decide is that apparently a good portion of those are Hispanics, that uh, an increasing population, more than what was expected, and they're trying to figure out how to bring that news out. But what do you see as the prospects uh, for an increasing de- uh, a development of uh, unity between African-American and Latino communities into the next century as the enormous demographic changes that are occurring in this country change the very composition uh, of the nation itself? Well, I think that the Republican Party has figured out long ago that if they can siphon off uh, at least 10 to 15% of the African-American vote and one-third of the Latino vote, they have a hammer lock on national politics. Since 1964, the, uh, uh, the U.S. electorate, uh, the U.S. white electorate, has, voted, uh, has not voted in, uh, for a majority for the Democratic Party presidential candidate. So it, white Americans this time around, voted about 42% in favor of Al Gore, so that clearly a majority of white Americans, regardless of income, regardless of social class status, um, have embraced the Republican agenda. Keep in mind, though, that's only the electorate. That's not the general population. So that the Latino vote is critically important as a part of a a broad front, uh, an anti neoliberal anti-globalization front that has to be constructed in the United States. The real question is, can both black and Latino leadership overcome parochialism, overcome the politics of narrow, petty bourgeois identitarianism to embrace a broad progressive agenda around jobs and social justice that transcends the particularities of our individual communities and fights for democracy and economic justice. That's really the challenge of leadership in, in, during this next century. And where do you think those leaders are coming from? Well, they're going to come, I, I believe, from quarters that are largely outside of the electoral arena. I think that one of the interesting things about uh, globalization and uh, the transformation of global politics in this period of neoliberalism is that increasingly black and Latino leadership, uh, grassroots leadership, will find that uh, the objectives of our civil rights movement were in many ways misplaced. Thirty years ago, when people asked the black community, what do you want? We would say, we want a black face in a high place. We wanted somebody who looked like us in a symbolic position of power. Well, guess what? Now we have it. We've got Colin Powell as the Secretary of State. We have Condi Rice, who will be the National Security Advisor. Under this kind of black uh, leadership, we're going to see uh, Bush uh, pursue an even more aggressive pro-imperialist neoliberal agenda than the Clinton and Gore administration. Uh, Both Condi Rice and uh, Colin Powell uh, applauded the Senate's rejection last year of the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty. Uh, they promised to abrogate the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty if it can't be ne- renegotiated with the Russians to allow for the deployment of a massive national military defense system. 
uh, Condi Rice and uh, the Secretary of State-designate Colin Powell also reject the Kyoto Global Warming Treaty that Gore, even Gore, supported. So when one looks both at the global, uh, the international level, and the domestic level, you see increasingly black and brown faces implementing neoliberal policies that directly contradict the material interest of the vast majority of working and poor people who are black, Latino, Asian American, and white. We want to thank you very much, Manning Marable, for being with us, director of the Institute for Research in African-American Studies at Columbia University. As we go to our final guest today, John Pilger, whose films have spanned the globe uh, from 1970, his films on Vietnam, uh, two uh, films on Mr. Nixon's secret legacy, uh, Do You Remember Vietnam in 1978, uh, Year Zero, The Silent Death of Cambodia in 1979, Nicaragua, A Nation's Right to Survive in the 1980s, Burp, Pepsi versus Coke in the Ice Cold War, The Secret Country, The First Australians Fight Back, about uh, the remarkable story of the Aborigines with a unique 40,000-year past in his own country where he hails from, though he lives now uh, in Britain. John Pilger, who's uh, done incredible work on East Timor as well as Cambodia, Nicaragua, and the other countries. As you listen to this conversation at the end of the millennium, your thoughts today? Well, <laughs> um, my thoughts today um, are not all that uh, sanguine, I have to say. Um, I think, uh, as Noam Chomsky pointed out, um, things really don't change. The same enemies are there for ordinary people, and they uh, they need to be opposed. Um, these days, there's a gloss. Um, uh, globalization is a, a horrible word, and it simply means imperialism. That was a word that was banished from the uh, from popular usage. Uh, after it was associated with uh, fascism um, uh, following the Second World War. But that's what we have these days, uh, imperialism. I was just reading uh, today um, a study of the uh, General Agreement on Trade and Services, GATS, which is a very little-known part of the, the whole um, thrust of the international uh, institutions in in really claiming much of the world in an imperial way, uh, th this is this is going to make inroads into countries that uh, that even the WTO hasn't been able to do, or the World Bank or the IMF, in that it will um, affect the privatisation of services, of water, health, education, uh, distribution that kind of thing. In other words, almost every area of public life now is under threat. That's 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 fairly new, although the 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 source of that threat is not new. John Pilger, I'd like to ask you if the 19th century was the 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 century of the novel as the main art form uh, to reach the masses of people, certainly the 20th century was the the main art form was film. What is your sense of the impact of film 
on the development of consciousness or of social control uh, among people around the world. And unfortunately, we've only got a, if you could do it in a, in a few minutes, uh, I know yeah. it's a big topic, but your, your thoughts yeah. on that. Well, I think, I think film is, is, as you have said, has been the most significant uh, uh, development uh, in terms of consciousness raising. Um, documentary film uh, has raised the consciousness of peoples all over the world. Um, I, kn- I know that some of the effects that my own films have had when they've been shown, uh, and that's why, uh, as a, a species, their uh, serious documentaries on mainstream television are virtually extinct in the United States, and I'm talking about political documentaries. Uh, they're fighting for their life over here. They're extinct in many other countries because they do have, they can combine the intellect, they can combine the head and the heart, they can buy, combine uh, the present and the past, they can, they can be essays of change, they can evoke, they can call people to arms, they can cut across uh, all those, uh, those barriers that are, are put up to uh, confuse people and obfuscate uh, issues. So um, I, have a, I have an abiding belief in the power of documentaries, and uh, people do too. In all the surveys here, they're asked, people are asked time and again, what do you want more of? They don't want more of the sort of bubblegum news that we get all over the world, uh, the horrific tabloidization of the news. They want documentaries. They want something that will help them to make sense of the world. And we hope that we can continue to bring that to people in the next millennium. We're going to thank you, John Pilger, for joining us, as well as Manning Marable, Noam Chomsky, Freni Jinwala, and uh, Edward Saeed. That does it for today's program. Special thanks to Chris Abrams and Terry Allen, our producers, Nell Geyser. Uh, special thanks to Bernard White, Janice K. Bryant, Harper. From the studios of the Band and the Fired, the embattled studios of our listeners. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez for another edition of Pacifica Radio's Democracy Now! Keep the mail coming in at mail at democracynow.org. If you'd like a copy of today's show, 1-800-735-0230. That's 1-800-735-0230. Monday, shortcut through the 21st century. 